Well, thank you so much, Dan, for leading us this morning. Just excellent, excellent work teaching us, shepherding our hearts, giving us clear sight to see the cross, leading us step by step to the throne of grace and aiding us in this um, time of worship. Just thank God for you and Mina and the whole praise team for your faithful service to us. We thank you, church. We pray that our prayer is that God would grow our hearts and just ever greater love for Christ. Um, you know, through my seminary training, God granted to me and to our church the ability to understand God's Word, to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yet we found that these brothers in the, on the East Coast have used these doctrines of grace, these same precious truths that we hold to, and they've carved out their lives and their church in such a beautiful way. It's amazing to me that some people can take the same scriptures, same truths, same doctrines and theology, and they carve out a life, they carve out a church that is, if I can say this, somewhat distasteful, it's unappealing, to me, it's unattractive. With these truths, they carved out a life that is full of legalism, full of outward conformity to religion. They carved out a life at a church full of pride and arrogance on truth and God's word. And to me, and to us, that's not worth seeking after. And you have to find these dear brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, or with the same truths, they've carved out a life that is beautiful. I mean, they're just, their pursuit of humility is, is genuine. You see, their, their generosity towards one another and towards complete strangers. How they honor one another above themselves in just excellent ways. How they passionately hold to doctrines of grace. And they adorn these doctrines of grace by their lives has been a source of great encouragement to, to our, our leadership and to our church. And we hope that we can continue to grow in these ways. And, um, you know, to be honest, um, I'm somewhat, I, I sense somewhat confidence that I can do that in the pulpit. But in the praise side, that was my lack. You know, that's my area of my life, ministry, that I'm just not able to lead uh, ably. And so we're just so thankful to Dan, um, our Asian version of Bob Coughlin, right? Asian Bob. So we'll, we'll get you a baby grand piano one day, and you can lead us that way. Well, praise God. You know, uh, we're, I was studying Second Timothy this week, continuing in our series, and we left off last week on... Grace and suffering, and those two words have been bobbing in and out of my head all week. Grace and suffering, grace and suffering. And I was moved again by Paul's um, grasp of the gospel and how it humbled him, so much so that he called his dear son in the faith to suffer with him for the gospel. And I have a Somewhat of a growing understanding of how difficult that is. I, I, I experienced it in a small measure in my own life. 
When we first began our church, our average age was uh, 22 years old. We're largely a college ministry that became a church plant. And those were the wonder years of our church life because when the average age of people in your church is 22, there's not much suffering going on. There's a lot of like fun and, you know, just a lot of jokes and lightheartedness happening in the church. And so, you know, people are like, you know, getting jobs, making money, you know, making moves, you know, failing, getting the Heisman, and then trying again, and succeeding. And, you know, everybody's just playing and joking around, and it's just... And, you know, for me, as a pastor in the ministry, there was suffering. But my joy was to see the church, and they were just living it up and having, having a great time, and that was a thrill to see. But as we grow as a church and grow older as a church... I see that um, I'm not the only one suffering. That suffering is real in this world. And more and more people in our church are suffering in Christ and for Christ. And that was much more difficult than I expected. I think parents, we can understand this. Like when, when we're sick, we go through trials or hardships, it's one thing. When we see our children they're sick, they're ill, they're suffering, they're going through pain. It hits us at a, hurts us at a deeper level. Well, likewise, in the church as well, we've seen that firsthand. How suffering in different measure is experienced by all of us. But I'm surprised by the other side of that coin. Intermingled with every suffering... There is the grace of God. If you're a Christian today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've experienced suffering, you've experienced God's healing. You've experienced disappointment, you've experienced God's comfort. If you've experienced heartache and pain and life and for Christ, your heart, outwardly you're full of sorrow, but in your heart you're rejoicing because grace that God gives to us is so much greater than what we experience in terms of suffering. So with that, I want to pause from our study in 2 Timothy and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to highlight to you Paul's explanation of the synergic, synergetic relationship between suffering and grace. There is synergy occurring between suffering and grace. And how positional salvific grace doesn't require our suffering. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. All that is necessary for us to receive God's grace salvation-wise, is to simply trust in Christ. It's simply to hold on and take God in His Word and believe in the Gospel. That's all that is required for us to receive grace that saves us. But if you want to receive grace that empowers, that strengthens, that comforts, that equips, that sustains, suffering 
is required. You can learn about sustaining grace through books. You can try to understand it through sermons or seminars or articles. But to receive this sustaining, empowering future grace, there's only one way. And it's by way of walking the road of Calvary, road to Calvary. It is by way of suffering. So for Christians, we ought not live our lives fearing suffering or running away from it. If anything, we should jump at every opportunity because we know right around the bend, grace awaits us. Right around the corner, there is God's beautiful grace waiting to catch us, strengthen us, and make us more like Christ. As we consider Second Corinthians, we got to see that Paul knew what he was talking about when he wrote about suffering. He is not an academic scholar writing a PhD dissertation paper on suffering by way of spending countless hours in the library researching this topic. Paul didn't learn about suffering in the classroom. He learned about suffering by suffering, by way of uh, um, sacrifice, by way of enduring it himself personally. In other letters, Paul shares a lot of the theology of the gospel. In this epistle, Paul opens his heart and he shares his life. This is arguably the most intimate letter Paul ever penned. I would venture to guess that the original autograph, right, the, the original document in which Paul wrote St. Corinthians must have been damp with his own tears. As you read this letter, you'll understand why that must be so. Because here in this letter, Paul pours out his heart. It is the most emotionally charged book that he wrote. Starting in chapter 1, verse 8, he gives us a very graphic snapshot of the many sufferings he experienced prior to writing this epistle. He gives us a blow-by-blow account of what he endured, even though he was was saved by God, chosen by God. He was an apostle of Christ. He had this special position, unique role, authority. Yet he was called to suffer so that he would experience grace and call others to experience it as well. Verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively, Paul says, beyond our strength. And read verse 8, that we despaired even of life. We despaired life itself. You thought of death as a way of escape because their, their hearts were so full of burden so full of fear and anxiety, the despair of life. 
Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and who will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. His affliction is such that he loses hope of surviving this. He, he's saying, he, he not only expects to die, but he will die a great death. And he confesses, his strength is spent. He has no more power to endure it. Amazed to find that even Paul had his limits. The sufferings he experienced in Asia brought Paul to his knees. Go to chapter um, chapter 7, verse 5. This body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Pressure from without and pressure from within. Chapter 11, 23 through 28, he gives more detail of his sufferings, his countless afflictions. Chapter 11, 23, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beat with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and the day in the open sea. He's just starting here. Verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. In danger from bandits. In danger from my own countrymen. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger at sea. And in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then verse 28. This is nothing, he says, compared to the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. So physically, he was suffering. Yet the greatest suffering was the burden of caring for these churches, of loving God's people. He likened it to the labor of childbirth. He was birthing every person, laboring with all his might to make them conform to the image of Christ. Spiritually, that was the agony that he was experiencing, caring for all these Christians. And the greatest problem church was the Corinthian church. Yeah, he sees a lot of physical pain and spiritual pain, but the pain that hurt the most came from these Corinthians, right? I wonder if, like, the New Testament translators got it wrong. Maybe it meant Corinthians, you know? <laughs> That's my little attempt at a joke. Possible, like, he made a wrong turn and 
Corinthians, but maybe it's Corinthians. Um, this church that he loved turned on him, betrayed him, maligned him, insinuated all kinds of uh, malicious attacks against him, labeled it against him. They appeared to be full of revolt against him in the church at Corinth. And I, I don't understand, Paul, all he did was love them. All he did was serve them, pray for them, give them the gospel of God's free grace. I mean, he sacrificed himself, spent his body for their salvation and their sanctification. And what does he get in return? Is they're suspicious. They're cold-hearted. They're angry. They're upset. They blame Paul instead of giving him thanks. A group of people from the Corinthian church accused him of being a false apostle. They said he was not a genuine apostle. They said he was an imposter. That he had wrong motives. That the money that he was collecting for the Jerusalem church in their famine was not for Jerusalem Christians. It was for his own pocket. He was taking this money and using it for himself. They called him a coward. That Paul, anytime persecution broke, Paul was the first one out the door. Attacked his character. They said he had a morally loose life, a secret life of perversion and morality. And above all of this, they criticized him of being a poor preacher. Being a poor speaker. 2 Corinthians 10.10 His speaking amounts to nothing. Man, they know how to hurt a guy. Man, that's a low blow there. As a preacher, come on, brother, that's too low. Right? That's too personal. You criticize, you know, my you know, basketball skills. You criticize my face. It's okay. Right? Criticize, you know, whatever, like, you know, my intelligence. But when you say, James, you're a bad preacher. Wow, that's like, that's, that's, really, that's really personal. That really hurts. And that's what they were doing to Paul. Paul loved them, yet led by these false leaders, they rejected Paul and some even hated him. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Look at how raw he is. Chapter 6, 11 and 12. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We open wide our hearts to you. We give you everything. When, when a man gives you his heart, he's giving you everything. I, I didn't withhold anything from you. We are not withholding even our affection from you. But you are withholding yours from us. It is in this context, culminates in chapter 12, verse 7. And he unveils the theological reason behind the suffering. He says, I know you're, you know, it's hurting me and you're causing me to suffer, causing me to pain, but I'm not blaming you. I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. I'm not angry and upset over you because I know the purpose of these sufferings. I know God's intent, God's sovereign work, and the synergy that exists between suffering and grace. And that all these sufferings will only result in my 
growing, experiencing more of God's grace. So he shares that with the Corinthians, so that they might understand God's glory and sovereignty, and the reason for Paul's humility in this circumstance. And that's for us, that we might have a biblical perspective of all of our sufferings. That we will not despair, we will not be bitter, resentful, we will not get angry at people, we will not be rebellious, that we will not get angry at God, but in and through all of our sufferings, we understand God's grand, sovereign, beautiful purpose in all of this. Verse 7. He shares the problem to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. The problem is Paul has a thorn in his flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. The Greek word thorn literally means a stake. A sharpened wooden shaft that was used to impale or torture someone. So he's saying there is this pain at my side. It's like a wooden snake impaled upon me, causing me great suffering. We are unclear exactly what this uh, is referring to. It's not a literal wooden stake. It's a metaphor for something else. Many commentators have (coughs) tried to figure out what this is referring to. Some commentators say it's a physical malady, that Paul had epileptic seizures, or he had a speech impediment, or he had other sickness in his body that caused him much pain. One English commentator says that this was likely Paul's unbelieving wife. Here is Paul trying to serve Christ and his unsupportive, nagging wife was a pain in his side. Right? You know, an English commentator said this. Most likely, this thorn in the flesh is a person. Someone in the Corinthian church, a ringleader, whom Satan is using to... Move people, move a group, and turn against Paul. Right. This, this person was leading the attack against Paul and his ministry. He was turning the church that Paul loved against him. And he said he was tormented by it. Kalafaiso, punished. Literally to strike with the fists. Their verbal attacks were to him like physical and violent attacks. But Paul understands the purpose. He understands that suffering is all within the grand sovereign will of God. Though when we suffer, we feel like we're thrown off the cliff. We feel like it's chaos. There's no bottom. And we're just in utter darkness. Paul's saying, I'm not in darkness. I'm suffering, but... I see clearly because I know the purpose of this suffering and all suffering. Verse 7, 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. The purpose of suffering was to humble Paul from becoming conceited. Suffering has a purifying effect. Suffering puts us in our place and humbles us. So for Paul, it was these surpassingly great uh, revelations. I mean, he wrote uh, 13 New Testament books. Uh, He visited the third heavens. Uh, He talked to Christ. He he had a a Christophany. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He heard the audible voice of Christ. And uh, that could definitely uh, cause a man to be prideful. Well, what about you? Right. What's the source of uh, your pride? Right. God's using suffering in your life because there's something in your life that could make you conceited. It could be your intelligence. It could be how much money you make. It could be everybody likes you. You know, you're just one of those people. Everybody's your friend. Or, you know, you're you're beautiful in the eyes of the world. Come from a good family. What is it for you? You're athletic. There's something in our lives, or many things, that if left unchecked, it'll cause us to be just conceited, arrogant, just full of ourselves. And God... Because we're so, you know, it's like our children. We tell them to, like, obey. It's not enough. So we have to discipline them, right? I mean, I don't want to discipline my kids. I just want to tell them, just obey. And I will love that. But they need discipline because they don't listen. Likewise with us. God tells us, be humble. Okay, we're humble. Man, life would be so much simpler, right? Christian life would be just so much more joyful. But we're so rebellious, so obstinate, so full of ourselves, so full of pride. They're just instructions about humility is not enough. We suffer. Why are we suffering? Why are these things happening to us? To us, it looks like chaos. It's not chaos. It's not meaningless. It's not without reason. There is the purpose of curing genuine humility in our lives. Humility is so important. Because first of all, Humility leads to true faith. The one thing that keeps unbelievers from following Christ is pride. Right? It's the one thing. Oh, I say, oh, it's my money, or it's my job, or my friends, or it's these sins. But at the core, it's self-worship. It's self-love. It's the idolatry of self, which is pride. It's pride that caused Satan to fall, Lucifer to fall from heaven. Likewise, for us, what keeps Unbelievers from following Christ is pride. They asked Augustine, what is the first requirement, prerequisite for salvation? He answered, humility. And they asked Augustine, what is the second prerequisite for salvation? And he said, humility again. What is the third prerequisite for salvation? And he said, humility. Humility leads to faith. Pride causes you. Turn away from Christ. 
I've got a cousin in Korea, South Korea, many years ago, 1989, was it? My goodness, 92, 92. I visited Korea 16 years ago. Wow. So I guess he's not in college anymore. <laughs> um, but 93, he was in college. And uh, he was kind of a weak, weak boy. He was sick most of his life. At least three times we thought he was in his deathbed. They called us, asked for prayer because he's not going to make it through the night. He's got a weak heart and liver. He's the only Christian in the whole family. Only Christian. He's a very smart kid. You know, he grew up in Singapore and Japan. He speaks four languages fluently. I'm able to fellowship with him because he speaks English, right? Fluently, so I could just talk to him. He won't. He wanted to be a doctor. He shared with me how he wanted to be a Christian. I wanted to be a doctor. And he shared with me how he became a Christian. He was in the hospital bed one night. And after surgery, he was racked with pain. And um, he remembered John 3.16 and he became a Christian. But he also shared how many times he gets angry and bitter at God. Because he has so many friends at school who are sinful or living in the world, just, man, they're like living for, the, for their pride. And yet, they're healthy and strong, and they're being doctors and lawyers and professionals, and they're doing it all for money. They're doing it all for their vain glory, just to be rich. He wants to be a doctor, really for the glory of God, but he can't because of his illness. He told me how he struggles sometimes because he has friends who aren't Christians, they're, they're doing well. And yet he seeks to live for Christ, and he is weak with illness. Well, I told him, brother, you should thank God for your weak heart. You should thank God for your weak liver. Because, you know, I, I knew him from when we were young. We hung out together a lot, and I know you. And if it wasn't for your weak heart or your weak liver, you'd be the most prideful, conceited guy in all of Korea. And that's no small feat. Right, I mean, that's, and he agreed. I mean, he's just so proud, so arrogant. He was a smart kid. Like he would beat me in games, and he would just talk out. But through this suffering, God humbled you, and you're a Christian. God saved you, right? God humbled your heart so that you might hear the gospel and embrace it. You should. Rejoice in God. And he agreed. He agreed. So if you're not a Christian today, why is God allowing all this suffering in your life? He's trying to humble you. He's trying to break your obstinate heart. Right? I see this quote all the time. The same heat that melts butter hard as clay. And with every sermon you're hearing, your heart is getting harder and harder. It's like getting harder by clay. So God is in suffering to pummel your heart, to break it, so that you might humble yourself and trust in Christ. Humility is important for believers because it leads to an ever-increasing dependence upon God. Such a temptation for us to walk with a swagger after we've walked with Christ for a few years and just live our lives based upon the uh, reservoir we have on past 
study, past knowledge, past experiences, and we're not depending on Christ for today. We're not trusting in Christ. We're not walking by Christ today. We're walking and trusting and living our lives based on the past. And that's a disaster waiting to happen. Suffering leads to humility. And humility is important because humility causes us to depend upon Christ. Every day, every hour, every moment, humility says, I need God right now just to listen to this sermon. God, help me to understand this message from 2 Corinthians 12. God, you need to help me. Humble my heart, Lord, please. My heart is so full of pride right now. Man, I'm just full of distraction. I'm just thinking about the future, other things, worries of the world. And I'm, I'm like just callous to your word. And I'm busy with so many different things. And I'm not here listening to you, Lord. Help me. I depend upon you. I trust you that I might take home the water of this word and carry it home and live it out. Live it out. Humility is important for that reason. And thirdly, humility is important because it leads to prayer. Paul said three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul went to God to pray. That's uh, what it takes for many of us to get on our knees. If you won't get on your knees on your own, that suffering will take you there. Disappointments in people, disappointments in life, right? Just suffering in Christ and for Christ will drive us to our knees. That's what God wants. Suffering produces humility, which produces a life of prayer. This is one of the practical evidences of humility. I mean, it's so like, it's just black and white. It's so revealing. How is your prayer life? Look at your prayer life. If it's non-existent, the level of lack of prayer, that's the level of your pride. The presence of a genuine prayer life. That's the evidence of your humility toward God. And then here, verse 9, Paul unveils um, the relationship between suffering and grace. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made complete, perfect in weakness. Again, this is not salvific grace. It's not common grace. It is the sustaining, empowering, conditional grace. Right? Grace of salvation is unconditional. There there are no requirements to be met, met to receive God's saving grace. But to receive God's sustaining grace, there are requirements. Right? James 5, humble yourselves, that God might exalt you. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So if you're proud, you don't meet the requirements to receive God's grace. You're missing out on God's grace. You might be a Christian, but you're not growing because of your pride. But God gives grace to those who are humble, who are contrite, who tremble at the word of Christ. 
Isaiah 66 verse 2. So that's what uh, Paul is talking about. And it says here, power is made perfect in weakness. That's the condition of receiving power from Christ. Receiving uh, this transforming power of grace from God. Being weak. Tell this illustration. I've shared it many times. So that's what happens, you know. If you're in church a long time, you're... Same stories. Bob and I, we have dinner together with other people, and I tell the same stories, and Bob rolls his eyes. Because he's heard this story. My wife, she stops listening, because as soon as I say the first two words, they know what story is coming. They know the joke. They know the punchline. They know the follow-up jokes that I'll tell for the next five minutes. And like, as soon as I swear and Bob, their own conversation, because and the new, new people are all laughing at my joke, and they're like, oh, man, it's like the 30th time I heard this. That's what happens, right? One of my hobbies used to be watching TBN. Some of you got like rolling your eyes already. Oh, a TBN joke, right? But for those of you who are new, it's, you know, you can laugh now, right? But one of my hobbies used to be watching TBN. You know, it pumps me up, right? It gets, my, you know, it gets me going. Like, oh, false theology, right? False life. I need to like pray more and say the Bible more to counter these like, you know, false teachers. So it like reviles me up. Soren gets all flustered and discouraged by it. What are you doing watching that? Well, Soren, you know, it's for my ministry. Uh, well, there's this one show it used to be on. I don't know if it's on anymore. It's called The Power Team, right? So these guys were like huge, huge like, I don't know the body parts now, traps, deltoids, triceps, biceps, uh, rhomboids, you know. <laughs> and they come out with ridiculously tight clothing, right? And they come out and like flashy clothing, and they break all these things in the church, and they do it all for the power of God, right? So they, they put their heads break two by fours. They rip telephone books, right? They handcuff themselves. This is sin. And say, everybody say Jesus. They shout Jesus. And they're like, more Jesus. They break. Like, wow, that's the power of God. I'm watching that. I go, no, that's not the power of God, right? Because that's the power of your 16-inch biceps, Right? Like, if I did that, people would be like, that's the power of God. Right? If, like, Jin Huang did that, I'd be like, that's the power of God. That's the Holy Spirit right there. Right? That's not Jin, no way. That's not his wife Donna. It's, it's, it's got to be God. Right? Well, same thing in Scripture. Right? Our weakness. God delights in weak people. God loves broken people. God delights in people who are, who are weak. Why? Because He gets more glory. He gets the rightful glory. Right? Gideon's illustration in Judges 7, there are all these men who are out to fight the Midianites, and God said, too many men. You have too many. You guys win? Of course you won, because 30,000 against 10,000, they're going to say, oh, of course, they're all one because they have more men. Right? Tom, if they're not in for the fight, go home. So half the men go. It's 15,000 against 10,000. Still too many men. Have them go down and lap water. 300, 300 men lap water in their hands and drink. Okay, 300 against 10,000. Now if Israel wins, I get the glory. Great, you're sufficiently weak enough 
for me to fight for you. So now let's go into battle. And of course, Israel won and God got the glory. And that same, for, same exact truth Paul is telling us. That when we are weak, God loves it. It's the truth, right? We're not, we're not lying anymore. We can share publicly, openly about who we really are. How we're so weak with our study of the Bible. How weak we are with like knowledge of the Word and how little we pray and how little we like to read Christian books and how much we love watching TV and how much we love like goofing around and like playing and like we're just so undisciplined and we're just like man, weak, weak sauce people, all of us. If, you, that, if that's your testimony, then God loves you. God delights in you, right? As you give glory to God for your life. But if you're like, man, I am, man, I am, you're, you know, kissing your biceps. You know, I don't want to do that here. But, you know, you're, you're just in love with your Christian self. Right? You're, you're full of your Christian self. You're all about your merit badges and all that you have accomplished for the Lord, all that you have done. And you're a walking advertisement of just how great a Christian you are. And God's like, why should I give you grace? Because... You're robbing my glory. You're getting all the credit, and I'm out of the picture. Paul understood that God's grace is made complete in weakness. And so his resolution is, verse 10, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in them. All the ways, just I'm messed up. Right, I'm weak. It insults. Someone insults me. I share much more of how I fall short. I don't answer back in those insults. I tell them, you don't know half of it. You don't know how, how much more I'm sinful. How much more I am unworthy to be an apostle. How much more I'm struggling with my flesh. How much more I'm undeserving of this grace to lead lead. Christians. He delights in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. And the conclusion is, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's the synergy. Suffering makes us weak, right? Not suffering makes us feel strong. Suffering makes us weak, but that's good. Because when we're weak, humbled, broken down, then God can start working in us and working through us. In closing, a few thoughts. Some of you, have you received the undeserving grace of God? Do you understand and have you received the unwarranted favor of God, the free gift that God gives upon to sinful men who are undeserving of such great mercy. Have you, are you a recipient of this grace? <laughs> How can you know? And the grace of God is the most powerful, most potent influence in all the world. When this grace enters a man's heart, he is forever changed. Man or woman, forever changed. 
Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't matter your upbringing. Doesn't matter your intelligence. Doesn't matter your background. It matters not. God created us. And doesn't matter how sinful we, we are or have been. When this grace enters a person's heart, forever changed. There is a radical transformation, a radical reorientation of a person's life. Their whole world is rocked. Their world is changed. Their affections are changed. Their delight, their desires, their treasures, their pursuit has once and for ever been changed. And you will see that evidence in their life. It's not about doing this and not doing that. It's about the heart. They love Christ. They love God's Word. They love God's church. They love prayer and praise. They love to worship God. They love to serve God. They love to give themselves over to Christ for His service. There is a genuinely repentant heart, a broken heart, a desire to obey the Scriptures, and a a genuine presence of humility. A brokenness toward Christ. Look at your life. If you don't have these things, it can mean only one thing. You have not drunk from the well of God's grace. But the good news is, it's available to you. There are no requirements. You don't have to like jump through any hoops. You don't have to uh, perform any works. You don't have to do any rituals. You don't have to get your act together before you receive God's grace. The whole point is, right, it's free grace. It's undeserved grace. The whole point is, it's faith. We all start same level as sinners. And all that is required is something that is an internal spiritual for us to trust in the gospel. To believe that Christ paid for my sins. I'm going to stop trying to pay for my own sins. I'm going to try to stop pleasing God through my own efforts, through my own works, through my own knowledge. I'm going to trust Christ, that He did it, not He's doing it. He finished it, and He will save me. You simply trust that. Trust in the grace of God. Trust in the Bible, and you'll receive God's grace in full measure. That's the promise that God makes. He binds, he bound himself to this promise. He committed himself to anyone who trusts in him. He will not be ashamed. He will in no way cast out. Exhort you to examine your heart. If you sense an absence of any of these uh, spiritual fruit in your life, you'll go to the root and consider that you are a foreigner to the grace of God. And all you need to do is to embrace Christ. Trust in the gospel and he'll give it out to you in abundant measure. For Christians today, a few closing thoughts. How are you living your uh, Christian life? Are you living by the flesh, boasting in your strengths, hiding your weaknesses, right? Storing up all your skeletons in the closet and fear of being found out, fear of being revealed who you really are. You know, I don't want to live like that in light of God's grace. 
No, how would you want to live? Like it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Right? We're saved by grace and we're, we grow by grace. If anything, you should boast of your weaknesses. Right? You should delight in how far you fall short. You should, we take God seriously. We take God's word seriously. God's work seriously. But we must not take ourselves seriously. Because all we are are sinners. We've been saved by God. We didn't do anything. We didn't add or contribute or, or, or invest anything. He did it all. So for us to act like we did something or we're worthy of this, it's just, it's a betrayal of our doctrine. It's a betrayal of our, our conscience. It's a betrayal of what we believe, what we hold dear. So how are you living your life? Have you applied this truth, these doctrines, and are you carving out a beautiful life for yourself and your family and our church? Your life is beautiful if you're um, delighting in your weaknesses. Your life is beautiful, attractive, it's glorious. People gravitate to you, towards you. But with these doctrines, you're hiding your weaknesses, boasting of your flesh, and you're carving out a life that's distasteful, unappealing, unattractive. Because there's pride, there's legalism, there's self-righteousness, there's a judgmental attitude, there is a lack of intimacy, lack of relationships, there is an an isolation in your life, you're above God's word, above God's people, living independently, lack of beauty there. Are you delighting in the weaknesses of Christ, weaknesses in Christ? Ah, do you understand God's purpose for your suffering? Right? Do you understand the big picture, the unveiling, the apocalypse, what, revel- what God has revealed to us is that our sufferings are not random. They are tailor-made, specific to each of us, all for the purpose of humility, so that we would become more like Christ. You understand that? I know it's easy to understand. Challenge to live it out day by day, and that's the fight. Are you appropriating that truth to your life where you're embracing suffering, thanking God for disappointments, and being content in heartache and pain because you understand God's intent behind it? And finally, we should thank God for suffering because. Dear Sister, our church said this. This life should be disappointing. This life, even though God gives us all these things, we understand we're aliens and exiles. We're just passing through this world. This world should be unfulfilling to us, unsatisfying. Sufferings of this world, they're good because it makes us long for heaven. It makes us long for Christ's return. Long for that day and we'll be with the Lord forever. Right? That's the ultimate purpose of suffering. It'll cause us to take our eyes off of ourselves in this temporal world and will cause us to long for Christ. Well, much time has passed. If you would just uh, bow with us together. We'll just have Elder Bob come up and close our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray together.